it's old timey crimey. It is indeed. <laughs> it's very much old timey and it's very much crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we have some very zany true crime to talk to you about today. We're kind of all over the map. It's, Literally. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be super zany. Well, you might be all over the map, but I'm mostly around Chicago. Like, it represents other places, but because of the the tinies that we've been doing, where we're following this case of the potential serial killer in the, the vicinity of Chicago, just naturally, I've been in the Chicago papers a lot. And so most of my stuff comes from that, from that area. But, you know, references other places. So, yes, we have a lot. And uh, speaking of the tinies, you're going to hear about it later in the episode, but don't forget about the Patreon. Do not sleep on this. We just had, Amber, what did we just have? We just had a great time because Christy is drunk on Bloody Marys (laughs) and Amber... And it got Amber got contact drunk just from being around I did. me. I, I, I feed off of that drunk energy, and all of a sudden I'm slurring and stumbling, and it's amazing. <laughs> it was quite the episode. We talked about the person who was accused of one of the murders that is generally kind of brought up in relation to these other slayings in Aurora, Illinois. And I really, really feel like he should be put on like a telenovela. But yes, anyway, this uh, gentleman is insane. We are all boneheads, and he has murdered 10, 20, 30, none people. And uh, he really, really wants to be hanged. He really wants to be hanged. He wants to build the scaffold for the hanging. He's uh, something else entirely. Assaults his own attorney, in addition to insulting literally everyone else, including the prosecuting attorney, the judge, and as they're going to deliberate... The jury. And he tries to tackle his own attorney. Yes, yes, yes. So lots of fun happening over on the Patreon, so you should definitely, definitely check it out. Yes, it is uh, a lot of fun, and link is in the show notes. So, Amber, shall we discuss some things that were in old-timey newspapers back in the day? Indeed. Yes, that is what we have for you today. We are going to be talking about different... Little articles from the old-timey newspapers that caught our eye while we were researching other things and totally distracted us (laughs) to the point where we realized, oh, I I didn't even get the information from that paper I was supposed to because I was too busy saving this little snip. So, yes, mine are in chronological order. Mine are all over the fucking place, just like me. All right, so you just throw yours in wherever you want to. Honestly. Uh, don't tell me that. <laughs> I know. You, you already know. You're, you're already going to do that anyhow. <laughs> so my first one involves one of your favorite things. Fire. Fire. Hooray. All for love. This was in the 1889 Herald and Review from Decatur. But the case itself was in Manister, Michigan. Two weeks ago, the district school building at Brownston was burned in a mysterious manner. The local officers investigated and arrested James Holmes, who at first swore positively that he did not know anything about the affair. He was dismissed, but has since confessed. Holmes says that George Miller gave him $25 to assist with the job. Miller was engaged to Miss Nettie Kennedy, and Edward LeClaire, the village schoolmaster, boarded with the Kennedys and was trying to force his attentions upon the young lady. 
Miller reasoned that if the school building was destroyed, the pedagogue would be out of occupation and his own love affair would proceed swimmingly. Holmes and Miller are both under arrest. The latter will not deny nor affirm Holmes' story. Hmm. Burn down a school building? Why not? Either out of jealousy or protection. It's kind of confusing because there's this whole, like, Leclerc was forcing his attentions upon the young lady. Was he just being a serious flirt? Or was he actually bordering on assault? Forcing his attention. Exactly. (laughs) His attentions. So, yes. All right. I'm going to read you a little bit about Jean Cameron, elusive petty bad check thief. She is notorious, but in a more or less interesting way. As Hazel Bergmeister, the name authorities claim is real, she was charged with robbing her grandfather, John R. Mulvey, wealthy Chicago banker several years ago. Since then, hers has been somewhat of an in-again, out-again career. She was disowned by her grandfather and was taken in by Mrs. Robert Wells. She was charged with robbing her benefactress and sentenced to the Illinois Penitentiary at Joliet. She escaped, the only woman ever to escape from that high-walled prison. Later, she was captured at Hudson, New York, and subsequently held on a bad check charge. She seized a guard's pistol and attempted to end her own life. For months, she was in the hospital. Then she returned to Juliet, and because of illness, was dismissed and sent to her home in Milwaukee. She recovered. Hmm. Next, she was arrested in New Jersey and held in jail for some rather petty crime. Harry Bowler Haynes came as benefactor. He made bond for her, aided her in attempting to go straight, and then, according to police reports, was robbed by the girl. (laughs) Oh, my God. He totally was trying to help her, but also probably wanted to get in her bloomers. We're not done yet. Oh, boy. The pretty girl was charged with having sent a taxi cab driver on an errand and stealing the cab and escaping. <laughs> oh my god. She was arrested with Frank Urban of Albany in connection with the robbery charge brought by Mrs. Julia Howe of New York City. She gained her release through bond, went to Albany, and was charged with stealing a fur coat from the woman at whose home she had once lived. Finally, she was rearrested here after getting bail in a number of New Jersey cities and held in jail pending action on a first-degree larceny charge. Previously, she had been accused of almost everything in the petty crime category. <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> it was while awaiting trial that she took bichloride or mercury tablets and which doctors say may result in her death. Oh, no. No. So she poisoned herself to attempt to end her own life after this spree of madness. Quite a spree. My goodness. And that is from the March 24th, 1928 Courier News out of Bridgewater, New Jersey. Wow. Jeez. All right. I have... A story out of Cory, Pennsylvania. And the headline is, Town is Aroused Over a Marriage. Okay, so uh, you're not going to believe where this story goes. It's quite something. Oh, by the way, this was 1902. Randolph, a town east of here on the Erie Railroad, is in great excitement tonight. The cause of disturbance is the divorce and remarriage of the town's only undertaker. A few years ago, 
Eugene C. Williams, the undertaker, and his wife came to Randolph, where Williams soon had a flourishing business. Mrs. Williams was quiet and associated with church people. Affairs ran smoothly enough until Williams installed Jenny Flagg as housemaid. A year ago, public sentiment became so strong against Williams' action that Miss Flagg left the household. Mrs. Williams also left Randolph for her former home. Yesterday, Williams stepped from a train with Jenny Flagg and announced that they had been married in Ohio after he had secured a divorce from his former wife. This announcement threw the village folks into a frenzy. A cannon was brought from an adjoining village and trained on the house by some of the mob, while others set a pot of tar boiling. Wow. (laughs) They are very upset that their undertaker has divorced and remarried. My God, can you imagine them just on the train on the way? Don't worry, honey. They're going to love you. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. There's not going to be any cannons involved, I promise. No, no. Don't even talk about tar and feathers. <laughs> Just tar. It's, oh, whistles were blown, bells rung, and guns were discharged. Williams was told to come forth quietly or his home would be bombarded. Cool counsel prevailed and the mob finally dispersed. Mrs. Williams had an attack of hysterics, can't blame her, which lasted through the night. Next day, she left the village and has not been seen since. Two special policemen are guarding the Williams' home. Williams has disposed of his business and will leave at once, and you fuckers can figure out your own undertaking. Right? You know what? (laughs) Fuck you guys. Yeah, yeah. Deal with your dead bodies if you're going to shoot cannons at me when I get a new wife. I just wanted to be happy. (laughs) Fuck you. All right, discovery of peddler's hoarded wealth stirs town in treasure hunt. Ooh, a treasure hunt. A treasure hunt. So this is in Greenwich, Massachusetts, March I think it's actually Greenwich. Greenwich? Yeah, throw that out there. Ah, all right. Greenwich, Massachusetts, March 24th. A treasure hunt in which rubbish heaps gave up handfuls of greenbacks and piles of decaying vegetables proved to conceal a fortune in stocks and bonds. (laughs) Okay. Not since the days of Captain Kidd has there been such a furor. The cause of it all was a ragged peddler, George E. Phipps, who dragged through a wretched existence in misery and filth. Arriving at the scriptural three score and ten, he passed away in squalor and solitude, the body to be found sometime later. This guy's fancy as fuck with the writing. Yeah, right? This is some purple prose if I ever saw it. Those who found the body were amazed at the wretchedness of the scene. The man's bed was a pile of old coats flung over bare steel springs, and his pillow was a bag of sprouting onions. (laughs) The ramshackle dwelling had just two rooms, in one of which the human being lived, The other housed his two horses. Imagine the smell. Oh, God. Dirt covered everything. A casual visitor, Martin Corey of Prescott, Massachusetts, poked among 75 bushels of rotting onions heaped against the inner walls of the old man's room. Some strangely embossed papers appeared. On examination, they proved to be stocks and bonds of high value worth several thousand dollars. Wow. This discovery prompted other dwellers to rush to the scene and join in the hunt. (laughs) 
Several baskets of waste paper produced hundreds of dollars in checks, all contained in unopened registered letters, monthly dividends. Wow. The dirt of the floor gave up other valuables until after several days of searching, $50,000 had been disclosed. Searchers frantically examined the land for indications of buried treasure, and this search may go on secretly for months. Papers indicated that the aged recluse had at least $100,000 in stocks and bonds alone. There were many stories as to why the old egg and onion peddler shunned his fellow man. (laughs) Some said he had withdrawn from human society when his father was burned to death in his shack 50 years ago. Whoa. Others said that when a young man, he was about to be married. He called on his fiancée one evening to find her entertaining another man. (gasps) Without a word, he walked from the house and retired to a hermit's life. It is said he previously was known as the best-dressed man of the section. Then he took to rags. One of his peculiarities was his transposition of the wheels on a dozen old wagons in a shed. He put the large rear wheels in front and the small front wheels in back because it's easier on the horses. Oh, well. Which he obviously loved very much since they were living inside. Yeah, yeah, clearly. They were his BFFs. Estimators have guessed that around a million dollars will be concealed somewhere in the property. Whoa. And that's old timey money. This is 1950. So I don't know if you have that calculator in your head already. Um, my 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 phone is uh, in another room, but I will look it up real quick for you uh, because it, measuring worth comes up almost automatically as soon as I. All right, so 1950, you said. Yep. All right, so one million dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay. Eleven million nine hundred thirty-nine dollars five hundred and thirty-four dollars and eighty-eight cents. A lot of fucking money. Uh, so almost $12 million. So yes. yeah, he was getting these monthly dividend checks and was just throwing them in the walls, on the wow. floor. That that astonishes me. That idea of you're literally, you're hoarding things. So you feel that they're valuable to you. But they're things that have intrinsic value to literally everyone in society. I.e. money. But that money is worthless if you're just keeping it in check form in your home. Well, because he didn't care about the money or anything. And oh my God, the smell though. Let's go back. Let's go back. The smell is something. He's an egg and onion peddler and has these all in his room. And then in the next room, two horses that live inside. But Uh just like, think about like manure and onions and eggs all rotting. That is horrifying as a person who despises Despises onions. I'm just very glad that as also a person without a gallbladder, I've been told not to eat onions. I'm like, yes, I finally have an excuse besides thinking that they're gross. Medical reason. Booyah. Yeah. Wow, that guy lived quite a life. Stinky life. All right, I have an interesting story about a new tax that's been proposed in Madrid. Okay. Which actually comes to us from the 1902 Topeka Daily Herald. A curious proposal of taxation has been submitted to the Cortes by Senator Legori. In order to balance, to a certain extent, the loss of the finances by the suppression of the duty on wheat and flour, Senor Legori suggests a tax on spinsters who are over 30 years of age. He is of the opinion that such a tax would prove an 
effective means of combating celibacy and bigotry, into which, he claims, spinsters fall so easily. What? <laughs> Apparently, spinsters are uh, bigoted celibates, which do you, do you, you don't probably approve of premarital sex, so do you want them to go around being uncelibates, if that's a word? And apparently they're also bigots. For or some reason. maybe they just don't like men. Maybe. So basically it's the lesbian tax. So, yeah. Lesbian tax. Lesbian right. tax. Three-year-old boy has to catch measles to save his life. Oh my. Is it, this is a measles party? <laughs> Port Huron, Michigan, September 28th of 1950. Young Johnny Neal of nearby Smith Creek has to catch the measles. His life may depend on it. Johnny, who will be three in November, is seriously ill with a rare kidney disease. Doctors at the University of Michigan Hospital, where he is being treated, have noted that victims of the disease have been known to recover if they have measles at the same time. Oh. So the boy's parents, Mr. and Mrs. John J. Neal, are making a public appeal to find another child with measles so Johnny can be exposed. I, this feels like a bad idea. This feels like a terrible idea and not in any way scientifically sound. It does not feel that way. And unfortunately, I could not find any follow-up on young Johnny Neal. And I looked. Yeah. There's a lot of John Neals. Ugh. A lot of them. I'm sure. But I could not find one of the same age to see if he uh, made it or not. Hmm. All right. Well, I have a little something medical. Some medical attention was needed after William Frick, son of millionaire banker, was precipitated from window. Okay. William Frick, uh, I have to say, uh, he's the son of the late millionaire banker Jacob Frick and nephew of Henry Clay Frick. Okay. One of the founders of the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. Yep. Our favorite club that uh, built a dam and then did not do such a great job maintaining it. And in fact, inserted a screen that interrupted the spillway. Because you want to keep those fish in so you can fish. Uh, and then uh, 2,209 people were killed in the flood. So uh, a hearty fuck you to Henry Clay Frick, who is only tangentially mentioned here. Um, but So this is William Frick in Lima, Ohio. So he's the nephew of Henry Clay Frick, the steel magnet, lies dying at a hospital here as the result of a scuffle last evening in the apartments of a woman giving her name as Florence Adams of Toledo. The woman declared that she and Frick, while wrestling over a glass of beer on the third floor of the Traction Exchange building, pressed against a window frame which gave way, precipitating them to the pavement. We have a follow-up. William Frick may live. Physicians gave up hope for William Frick of Bellefontaine, member of the wealthy Frick family, following the amputation of both his legs last night. But he rallied, and today has a chance to recover. The woman who fell with him from a third-floor window Wednesday night, when both were injured, and who gave her name as Miss Florence Adams of Toledo, today admitted that she is married 
and that her husband lives in eastern Ohio. She is held on the charge of disorderly conduct. She has developed symptoms of internal injuries. Frick made his will last night, bequeathing his property to his eldest daughter. One year later, he shows up again. William Frick again appears in limelight. This time is fined for failure to support his children. William Frick, who figured in a sensational escapade just about a year since, was found guilty in probate court in Logan County last Saturday of failure to support his two minor children and was ordered to pay $20 weekly for the support of the young people. The children have been making their home with their grandfather, and for a long time Frick has paid nothing toward their support, although he is the owner of a large farm near Huntsville. It will be remembered that Frick had both lower limbs amputated because of his injuries, and he has been keeping closely to his farm since he recovered sufficiently to leave the hospital here. So, asshole is fighting with a woman over a glass of beer. Married woman. Uh, gonna say they're both drunk. <laughs> Which, no judgment from me. <laughs> no judgment. No judgment. But they fell out of a third-story window. He ended up losing his legs. And then he's like, oh, I have no legs. I can't pay. Even though he comes from a very rich family. Incredibly, incredibly rich family. And, oh, by the way, he lived another 30 years. I looked it up. So. Hmm. Which was harder than you'd expect to find. There's a lot of fricks. Frick those fricks. Frick those fricks. So, officers hunt missing husband said to have been jealous of 16-year-old son. I'm sure this is pronounced Ma-a-Lester, but Molester, Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. You got to tell me the spelling. You got to tell me the spelling. M apostrophe A-L-E-S-T-E-R. Okay. Apostrophe was frequently used for Mc, like the lowercase c for some nope, reason. Nope. McAllister. Nope. Okay, Molester. Sure. Molester, Molester, Oklahoma. Okay. Molester, right. Oklahoma. Molester, Oklahoma. Sure. <laughs> We're there. We're there. We're, we are in Molester, Oklahoma. June 2nd of 1928, a triple slaying in a remote section of the Jack Fork Mountains, 50 miles southeast of here, was revealed today. The victims were Mrs. Myrtle Lee Jackson, 15 years old, wife of Eb Jackson, mountaineer, and two of his children, Orville, 16, and Abby, Officers were conducting a search for Jackson, who, it was learned, had been missing since last Tuesday. The bodies of Mrs. Jackson and the boy were discovered by a prohibition agent yesterday. The girl's body was found today by Pittsburgh County officers who went into the hills to investigate. Neighbors said the attentions paid by the younger Jackson to his stepmother had aroused the jealousy of his father. The elder Jackson was married about a year ago. The bodies were found in a cornfield, which the mountaineer had been plowing. A moonshine still, for which the prohibition agent was searching, was located today by the county officers. Neighbors recalled hearing shots about 5 p.m. Tuesday and said Jackson had not been seen since. Jackson was at liberty on bond, awaiting trial in district court on a charge of cattle stealing. This oh man married a 14-year-old when he had a 15-year-old son. And then was upset that his wife and teenage son, who were super close in age, got along so well. I did not even make the connection that his wife was 14. 
Yeah, 15 when she died. But Jesus. 14 when she got married. Right. And his son was 16 when he died. So they were a year apart. She was a year younger than his son. How old was he? Was he 30? They didn't say his age. So I don't know how he old he has is. A, a, a 15, 16-year-old son. He has a 16, a 16-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter. And he married... A, a girl who was 15 at this time, but 14 when he married her. So he's got to be like 30, 35. Yeah. Oh my God. Gross. 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 All right. Well, if we're going to go down that road. Shoots girl and himself. Refusal to wed causes suicide and probable murder. This is in Chicago. After an acquaintance of two hours during which time he proposed marriage and was rejected, Frank Marcus of Dillendale, Ohio, today shot and probably fatally wounded Grace Hall and then killed himself. I've got loves too much. Police are called. Ooh, I've got a very similar thing for after you're done. Yeah. Cleveland, Ohio, April 2nd, 1927. Eugene Foley is only 26 years old, but he has no patience with this idea. <laughs> With the idea of being 26 years old? That a young man's fancy turning soft in the springtime. Foley is a streetcar conductor. He, he appealed today to A.A. A. Schreiber, police prosecutor, to relieve him from the affectionate remarks of a fair passenger whose ticket he, <laughs> he collects each morning. He declares he cannot do his work well because a woman passenger persists in making love to him. <laughs> The prosecutor has asked the young woman to call for a conference Tuesday when he hopes to instill in her some of Foley's resistance. Oh, my God. It's really hard to read. But I, I just love this idea that he is actually going to court because this woman will not leave him alone. This is probably <laughs> me in a past life. Yeah, that is probably you. You found that streetcar name Desire. Hey, baby. <laughs> I got somewhere for you to park your streetcar. Yeah. Girl fined $25 for flirting. This is in Milwaukee. This also might be me. <laughs> it might be. By the way, a masher is basically a flirt. Just someone who uh, flirts with people, apparently. The second female masher to be arrested under the new ordinance was fined $25 and cost today by Judge Nealon. Patrolman Beckman watched Anna Pritchard cast glowing glances at men as they passed a street corner Sunday night. The young woman, who is 21 years of age, made a tearful plea for clemency, but it was unavailing and she will pay the fine. The ordinance against mashing was aimed at male flirts. It was passed as a result of the Zinda murder some time ago. The first two arrests under the ordinance were women. Two things to point out. Cast glowing glances. That is the crime that we have here, as, as described by the newspaper. She was looking at men. She had her eyes that saw men. I'm gonna go to jail. You're gonna go to jail, I'm gonna go to jail, we're all gonna go to jail. I can't watch TV <laughs> without casting some glowing glances. We're all gonna go to jail yep. for casting glowing glances and have to pay $25 for flirting, which is probably like $250 today. I don't know. I don't feel like looking up. But, and then second of all, the uh, 
the mention at the end, it was passed as a result of the Zinda murder some time ago. I did look that up, and it appears that a 14-year-old girl was snatched off the street, sexually assaulted, and then murdered. They then proceeded to apparently pass a law against flirting, for which they appear to only be picking up women. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna point that out without any commentary whatsoever. You can just just marinate in it. Isn't that kind of like the uh, school dress codes now? Really? Yeah, this idea that um, men, including teachers, apparently can't help but be distracted by a shoulder. Heaven forbid. I know, right? Can't wear tank tops. God forbid. I have a, an ad for you. Ooh, I love ads. And I'm only going to read the first part because I was so fucked off at this that I, I did not bother to clip it so that you could actually read the rest of it. <laughs> Don't be miserable and fat. <laughs> no, I insist I will. Fat is ugly. Oh. You, you can't be fat and stylish. <gasps> But you can get rid of that fat without change of diet or unnecessary exercises. Thousands of patients <laughs> attempt perfection of my method in treating obesity. Attain perfection, sorry. Um, thousands of patients attain the perfection of my method in treating obesity. Don't be miserable and fat. <laughs> Dying. Don't be miserable and fat. Yep. Oh, God, yes, it is there in big, bold letters. Yep, yep, and it is not very clear, so I don't know what the rest of it says. Oh, my God. But I saw that, and I'm like, no, what if I want to be your motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> right, I have actually kind of a long-ish story here from the Inter-Ocean in Chicago from 1912. Um... Clothesline chosen spooning spot. Nurse and son of millionaire also kissed, held hands, and she danced for him. Told in suit for divorce. So this is kind of an example of, if you were in the public eye, what you could expect if you tried to divorce your husband because he was being unfaithful to you from the newspapers. You could, you could expect that this would hit the newspapers and you would be incredibly embarrassed. So here we go. Neighbors regaled by queer courtship pranks. So, and by the way, this is all kind of blurry, not because I'm drunk, <laughs> but because... Old-timey newspapers. Old-timey newspapers taken into a file and then put into PowerPoint, which is where I'm reading them from, and it's, there's, it's, it's blurry. This, this particular one is blurry, so I'm just going to not edit any fuck-ups out of this. And you can hear all my fuck-ups as they are and enjoy them. Stories of clothesline courtships, moonlight tete-a-tetes, and graphophone dances were related yesterday in Judge Scanlon's court in the proceedings brought against Edwin A. Peace, son of John H. Peace, retired millionaire manufacturer of Aurora. Ooh. That's our, our tiny series there. By Mrs. Clara Peace for separate maintenance. So she's looking for, essentially, alimony, child support, something like that. Miss Harriet Setzer, a nurse in the Peace home, is the woman who sang and danced to the gramophone for the entertainment of the younger Peace, according to witnesses. Besides numerous 
quote, hand-holding episodes. <gasps> I swear, my pearls, I'm clutching them. Witnesses told of late auto rides, kissing scenes, and heart-to-heart -heart talks across a clothesline in which the younger Peace and Miss Setzer were the principal actors. It was said every time Peace returned to his father's home, Miss Setzer would furnish him with entertainment while he ate his meals. Oh, my. Ooh. Miss Elizabeth Dittman, employed in the Aurora Hospital and who formerly was employed in the Peace home, was the witness who told of these happenings. She testified the younger Peace came home to live shortly after Miss Setzer had been employed as nurse in his father's home. On one occasion, Miss Dittman testified Miss Setzer had slapped her in the face because she had told her she had thrown some of Miss Setzer's clothes on the floor. So this, there's two nurses employed in the home. One nurse throws the philandering nurse's clothing on the floor and philandering nurse slaps her. There's a lot of hers in that sentence, so I thought I should clarify pronouns there. I also told Ed I thought he was in love with Miss Setzer, said Miss Dittman. What did he say? asked Attorney Labors. Laborn? Something like that. I don't remember what he did say. Then why bring it up? I know, right? On another occasion, the witness said she had seen Pease and Miss Setzer sitting in the front parlor. <gasps> Gasp! They were sitting in the parlor and it seemed as though they were holding hands. <gasps> Double gasp, said Miss Dittman. How close were they together? They weren't so very close together, but their chairs were side by side. <gasps> Did you see their hands? I just got a glimpse of them, and when I got to the door, they drew back. Miss Dittman also testified when Peace would return from a trip to Chicago, Miss Setzer would, quote, entertain him while he was eating. On other, on other occasions, the witness said Miss Setzer would dance and sing to the tones of a gramma, gramophone, graphophone. Their phonograph is essentially like what we're thinking, like big horn throwing out music. With sort of a record on it. Big horn. Big horn music. throwing out music. Miss Annie B. Varica, who for many years lived in the house across the street from the Peace Home in Aurora, was recalled to the stand for cross examination by the attorney for Pierce. Miss Farina told of two occasions when she said she saw Peace and Miss Setzer kiss each other. She also told of seeing them go automobile riding. Frequently, She said she saw all these things while she was sitting in her front room or from her front porch. Tell us about the clothesline incident, asked Attorney Allshuler. Well, I saw them leaning over the clothesline together, said Miss Verena. They were speaking very confidentially together. How many times did you see them go riding at nighttime? They went nearly every pleasant evening. Now tell us about the kissing transaction. <laughs> well, one time I saw them kiss each other while in the front hall and on another occasion while they were in the sitting room. What kind of weather was it? I, I don't know why this is germane. Well, on one occasion it was cold and the other time it was warm as I saw them through the screen door. What the fuck is happening? I don't know. 
Miss Verena also testified to seeing Miss Setzer on the porch on moonlight nights. Whether they were kissing then, I do not know, but they were sitting pretty close together and their heads were together, said Miss Verena. How many times did you observe that? That was quite a common occurrence. Carl A. Hartman, secretary of the American Metalware Company, was the next witness. He said he became acquainted with Peace and his wife in 1903. He said he frequently visited their home while they were living in Chicago. On one occasion, he testified Mrs. Peace had threatened to kill herself with a revolver following a quarrel with her husband. Further hearing will be resumed this morning. I don't know whether they got the divorce or not. I'm I'm figuring they probably did. But um, I love that it's like, oh, they were maybe holding hands, sitting in separate chairs, kind of close to each other and talking over the clothesline. And then it's like Mrs. Peace tried to kill herself with a revolver. And, but, that escalated quickly. I mean, all the all the testimony focuses on whether or not they were holding hands. And then briefly we get that Mrs. Peace tried to kill herself, which considering that her husband seems to be running about holding hands and getting all the neighbors talking with the nurse, uh, maybe she's a little upset. Maybe, maybe just a little. So uh, this is actually an ad for a comedy. Hmm. No. Yes, 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 yes. She thought her brain was hitting all six. But when she discovered a crowd of men eyeing her ankles, she suddenly realized the reason for her success. What? Here's the season's most hilarious comedy with a glittering cast. You'll laugh until your sides hurt, or there's no such thing as fun. I'm already laughing until my sides hurt. William Fox presents Ankles Preferred. An intimate story of silk stockings with Madge Bellamy. (laughs) An intimate story of silk... Uh, Oh, there's an illustration! It is... Okay, let me describe this for you. It is a woman. uh, She is lying down on maybe a settee or something like that. She's very flapper-ish with her her garb. She's showing leg, for sure. Lots of leg. Definitely ankles. But, yo, definitely ankles. But I think the star of the show is the very tiny man sitting on her knee. Yeah, and he's very, like, Monopoly man. Like, he's got got the the top top hat. hat. (laughs) Yeah, he's got the suit. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a monocle somewhere in there. Very tiny man. He's, like, maybe, like, one-eighth her size-ish. He's about as tall as uh, Totony. I think, on her. I'm going to need you to send that to me. Yes, yes. Well, I, I also, you can just have this copy and we can put yeah. this on the wall. Well, we already have on the wall um, from from last week, from the extra extra, we have the, the drawing of the dancing lady and the women doing their sewing in court. Uh, I put those up today because I love them and I cannot stop staring at that dancing lady still after after a week. Yeah, it's still horrifying. It's still horrifying, yeah. This one kind of destroyed me just from the sheer lack of coverage. These are two of the very few articles I could find on this murder case. Oh. That is pretty gruesome. And uh, I'm going to let the headline speak for that. This is from the 1913 Passaic Daily News. Head of woman severed, then put in place again. Oh, my. Bloomfield, New Jersey. 
The body of a young woman from which the head had been severed and replaced was found in a lot here today. From the name on a handkerchief, she was identified as Alvira Churchiello, wife of a Newark storekeeper. $200 the husband said she carried in her stocking was missing. The fingers were severed from the hands. The ground gave evidence of a terrific struggle for a life. And then about, let's see, that was May 30th of 1913. November of 1913, Angelo Cercellio, a young grocer, after a 10-day trial for the murder of his wife, Alvira, was found guilty in the first degree yesterday whose bride of four months was found hacked to death in a field in Bloomfield last Decoration Day. Fingerprints on a bloody hatchet helped to convict him. And that's literally all we get. Wow. I mean, his name is a little hard to get right, so I tried a couple different spellings, but that's that's three paragraphs all told over the course of, like, several months of a... He chopped off his wife's head. Wow. Like, I cannot believe this did did not get more coverage. I'm going to look some more. I doubt I'll find anything because I I did look pretty hard because it's intriguing. Speaking of losing your head. Oh, God. Train beheads man as he uses rail for pillow. Oh, no. This is from the Hartford Courant in Connecticut. An an unidentified man, about 45, was discovered lying decapitated on the Windsor Street Railroad tracks about 5.30 p.m. Saturday afternoon. The Hartford East Hartford transfer train had just made another trip into the freight yard along the track on which the man was found and was returning on a parallel track when the body was discovered. Mm. The man had been lying on his stomach with his feet crossed using the rail as a pillow. So that's what they said. I don't see this being anything but deliberate. Yeah. He was evidently a Russian. (laughs) Gotta include that. He'd been living around camps in the dump section for four or five days, according to the detective sergeant. No one knew him, but he was reported to have come from Springfield, Massachusetts, and had been chased from home by his wife. Mm. He was wearing a blue suit, checkered cap, and black slip-on sweater under his coat. Partially bald, the man had gold bridge work on his lower jaw. And then it goes on to talk about the train. Well, trains are trains are important. But since that one was pretty short, I actually have another one from the same paper, same time. This is, again, the Hartford Courant in Connecticut, 1939. Farmer electrocuted in freak accident, Oklahoma City. R.M.W. Cody, 45, was electrocuted on his farm following this freak sequence of events. (laughs) And it's numbered. One, steering gear of a truck broke on a hilltop in front of the Cody home. Rolling 250 feet down the hill, out of control, the truck crashed into a 4,000-volt high-line pole. Two, one of the wires fell on the metal roadside sign 200 feet away. Mm. Three, The sign charged a barbed wire fence. Four, the fence set fire to a patch of grass near the Cody home. (gasps) Five, a pail of water which Cody threw at the blaze hit the fence and conducted the electricity to his body. Oh, no. 
I just thought that was an amazing sequence of events, and I love that it was numbered. I love a numbered list. I do love a numbered list. We talked about railroads just now. Yes. I have another little brief about railroads in Scranton, Pennsylvania, actually. All right. From 1914, July 11th. Pennsylvania flood subsides. The high water caused by yesterday's storm, during which a man and a boy were drowned, and another man was killed by lightning, had completely subsided today. The worst sufferers from the heavy fall of rain were the railroads, several of which were tied up for hours last night because of washouts. Yeah, definitely the, the worst sufferers were for sure the, the railroads. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are not the three people that were killed. Mm-mm. No, the railroads are suffering. I'm angry. Okay, what you got? Um, You know what? I'm going to go out of order here. I'm going to cheer you up a little. Okay. I've got some cheering up coming too, so. Yeah, I feel like we're getting a little heavy, so let's, yeah, let's yeah. make it lighter. So, straws for a bride. Okay. Three brothers settled question for the girl in that way. Oh, no. Three uh, brothers, John. I thought they were giving her straws. <laughs> no. Nope. Three brothers, John, William, and Henry Mock, are well-to-do and live in Davis County, North Carolina. Near the Mock family lives Jacob DePass, and the chief ornament of his family is Miss Nellie, with whom each of the Mock boys was in love and had told her so many times. Miss Nellie decided that she would have a wedding and told each brother to get ready as though he was to be the favored one, and the two who failed to get her could attend their fortunate brother at the ceremony. Hmm. At 2 o'clock Monday night, Miss Nellie arrived in her finest costume, decided to let the three brothers draw straws to see which she would marry. The youngest brother got the shortest straw. Then Miss Nellie, the bridesmaids, and their attendants... (laughs) Arranged themselves before the family minister and Nellie became Mrs. Henry Mock. Wow. This is in 1906. I also just realized that it's kind of funny that at a wedding you have the groom and the best man, which I understand is his best man, but shouldn't the groom be the best man? It's kind of a, kind of a big day for him. He's just the groom. It's the same thing with the maid of honor, though. True. True. Yeah. Yeah. She's okay. not the one being honored. Yeah. <laughs> I have a little bit about animal training here. Okay. All right, so this is 1913 in the Belvedere Daily Republican. Most people have heard of the celebrated calculating horses of Elberfeld, who can do anything up to calculating square roots in addition to being proficient at spelling. It would now appear, according to the Paris press, that although these feats are actually performed, they are due to a very clever device. An animal trainer has informed the Matin that he has utilized a system of wireless telegraphy for training animals to do all sorts of tricks. The receiver is placed on the horse's bridle while the trainer or an assistant manipulates the transmitter. By a code of signals, which are not difficult to teach, the animals can be made to give any desired, quote-unquote, answer. It is suggested that this system is used in the case of the celebrated Elberfeld horses. Prior to the utilization of wireless telegraphy, the trainer mentioned employed a method of signals by means of a toothpick. So basically, somehow they use telegraphy to signal the answers to the horses of what is the square root of 
pie or whatever the fuck they're asking. Hmm. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia. We also delve into the old newspapers, for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like nutting day while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come t- we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love nutting day. <laughs> nutting day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest and most shocking old-timey crime that's patreon.com slash old-timey crimey where's the link (laughs) in the show notes (laughs) i knew i was not gonna get through nutting day without giggling and then i have a, a really interesting summary synopsis of a moving picture okay called the troublesome telephone Okay. Miss Ruth Rowland and Johnny Brennan, the popular Calum Laugh producers, are at their best in the Calum comedy headline feature, The Troublesome Telephone. This picture is due to appear at the Majestic Theater tonight. Mrs. Morris makes use of the new phone to call her husband up at his dental office every few minutes. The calls come just as his patients are in the chair. Several of them flee while he is busy with the phone. Lovers call on Mrs. Morris and kiss while she is at the phone. Morris, hearing the sound, believes someone is making love to his wife. He leaves one of his patients in the chair under the influence of gas. The man revives and wrecks the office. When Morris returns, he views the damage, and his wife calls up again. The doctor runs home, pulls the phone from the wall, and throws it out of the window. During the same performance, a picture showing a day aboard the Boston Floating Hospital will be seen. The sick children of Boston's slums are treated aboard this vessel and taken for a daily sea excursion. This picture is endorsed by charitable organizations everywhere. So, yes, a whole farce involving a phone and a woman who can't stop calling her husband the dentist at work. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you some brutal stuff. I'm ready. You went first. I'm going dark. Ah. 1905, January. News was received from Tokyo by the Empress of Japan yesterday that the Japanese police have solved a strange crime when proving the murder of the celebrated Japanese poet Nezel Noguchi by Osobiro, his adopted son. It was found that some years ago, Osobiro murdered a boy and cut a piece of flesh from his victim to make soup which he fed to his foster parents, who were leprous. He did so because he read that soup made from human flesh could cure leprosy. Oh, well. Mm. Wow. I got another brutal one, too, if you want me to just get them out of the way. Go for it. Do it up. Do it up. Headless driver held the reins. Mm. 
Oh, we have more chopped off heads. Yay! Strange crime believed to have been perpetrated by secret society. Ooh. Rome, January 1905. A strange crime was committed at Bergamo yesterday. At a late hour last night, a horse and trap belonging to Sig- Signor Larupi. Signor Larupi? Sure. A well-known <laughs> citizen drew up in front of his house. On the seat was Signor Larupi's headless body with the reins tightly wrapped around the hands. The crime is believed to have been committed by members of a secret society, among whom Signor Larupi had enemies. Oh. The head was afterward found in a sack containing Christmas presents, <laughs> which the murdered man had purchased in a neighboring town earlier in the day. <laughs> After decapitating their victim, the murderers had secured the body in the trap and whipped up the horse. The animal, having frequently traveled by the same road, found its way home. Imagine! Imagine! Some kids are going to have a very disturbing uh, Christmas when they open up uh, Santa's sack. Look, your dad brought you presents before he died. Oh, Oh, there's his head! (laughs) That's horrifying. I have another divorce tale to tell you because it's just what we talk about in the papers all the time. And it's my favorite. It's it's quite something. And again, this one is blurry, uh, so I'm just going to read it. And if I make any mistakes, you're going to have to forgive me. You being the readers, Amber will forgive me because she's, she's my friend. So you're all my friends too. And I'm drunk. So <laughs> anyhow. So Mrs. Charlotte R. Richter was granted a degree of divorce yesterday from Edward L. Richter, formerly an attorney with offices in the Hartford building. She played detective and found that her husband was infatuated with a 17-year-old girl. The girl is Charlotte Dumont, now a ward of the juvenile court. Mrs. Richter testified, The first suspicion that I entertained of my husband was one evening when I answered the telephone and a girl inquired for him. She told me her telephone number, and when I repeated it to my husband, I noted that he acted queerly. Later, I called the number, telling the... Oh, hang on a second. I'm missing some of this. All right, so she tells the girl that, you know, hey, that man you called is my husband. I did not snip correctly. On the day following, I visited the place from which she had telephoned, finding that it was a school called Bergen Hall. There I met Charlotte Dumont, who told me that my husband was her uncle. I induced the girl to come with me and there confronted her with my husband. He said he had met her when she was a waitress and, quote, being sorry for her, had wanted to see her get an education. Shortly after this, I learned that my husband had gone to the Plaza Hotel. I became suspicious and went there, arriving about five minutes before my husband got there. I learned that the girl was there and went to her rooms. She permitted me to hide in a clothes closet. When my husband came in, he tried to caress her, but she wouldn't let him. As he was saying, why are you so cold to me, dearie? I stepped from the closet, whereupon my husband left the hotel. When he did come home, he begged me to forgive him. I did so, until I learned that he was meeting the girl at his office. On one occasion, I went there and broke the glass in the door. The girl escaped by another door, however. 
See, and here for a second, I was like, yay, girl power. She's like, yeah, hide in the closet. We're going to catch this son of a bitch. And then she's like, oh, no, I'm just going to keep doing it. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. Yes. And I love that she's like, he's my uncle. And he's like, oh, I just wanted her to get an education. And uh, Mrs. Richter is like, bullshit to both of you. You're both, you're both full of it. I love it. I, I can't help but tell you the headline of this next piece. He kissed her on Clark Street, and a cop jerked him. Oh, yeah? Guy Morville kissed a pretty girl last night and paid the penalty of love by landing in jail. For Guy, very injudiciously, staged his love bee on unromantic Clark Street. Side note, I'm assuming unromantic Clark Street is maybe kind of red light district-ish? Yeah, that was my thought. And still worse, under the scornful eyes of Officer William Morgan. Morville is the manager of the cabaret show in the Boston Oyster House. Ew. He He left there with one of his young singers and another couple. But duty called Morville, and when they had reached the street, he drew his comely young singer to his bosom and kissed her tenderly just once. Cupid hovered near, but alas, and alack, so did the policeman of the unsympathetic nature. Morville was taken to jail in court this morning. The case was continued until September 3rd. Morville threatens civil service charges. Forecast. Gay. (laughs) Wet. Yes, yes, absolutely. 100%. It's going to be gay and wet. I'm for this. This is the best forecast ever. Bartenders, prepare for picnic. (laughs) I'm so happy right now. (laughs) I'm so happy. Just a year ago now, if you will remember, chances are you will not if you were there, the bartenders (laughs) held their first annual picnic. Tomorrow at Helvetica Park, Local 600 of the Bartenders Union is going to hold its second annual picnic, and plenty is going to happen. They have a program of an even two dozen events, starting with a barbecue and ending with dancing, which encompasses the cultural, athletic, artistic, and dramatic action aplenty. For instance, between the barbecue and the dance, there will be such demonstrations of skill as diaper changing and rolling pin hurling, in which the weaker sex may demonstrate their speed and accuracy. Fuck you. (laughs) A bathing beauty contest, races, floor shows, beer drinking contests limited to 10 entries, and a bartender's cocktail shaking contest. Just to make the beer drinking contest fair to both sexes, there will be two of them. One for the men and another for the women. Fat man's contest. (laughs) Fat and miserable. No, not for men. (laughs) And in the same spirit of fairness, the fat man's race, in which you weigh 235 pounds to enter, will have an auxiliary event. But the girls will not have to weigh in. (laughs) There will be a nail driving contest open to women only and a wood sawing contest also for the women. For the bartenders themselves, there will be a popularity contest with honors to be awarded to the handsomest and to the homeliest bartenders. Oh my god! Contest for youngsters! You get an award for ugliest bartender? Apparently! Jesus Christ! 
Contest for youngsters. Of course, the prize dancers will be chosen. Sack races, pole climbing contests, and egg races will give the youngsters a chance to strut their stuff. Different judges have been chosen for each event, so nearly the entire roster of political candidates is limited. But they have been warned to confine their activities to handshaking. No speeches will be permitted. The committee chairmen are Jack Cuneo, Harry Pettigrove, C.S. Jaquith, A.F. Lawrence, Frank Quirk, W.G. Victor, Mal... Nobody gives a fuck about these people. Yeah. The fucking headline. Forecast. Gay. Wet. <laughs> bartenders prepare for picnic. And, and there's cartoons. Oh, there's cartoons, too. That's excellent. Oh, don't you... Don't you politicians dare, dare try to give a speech when we are awarding the ugliest bartender their prize. I know. Like, I was like, I need this headline. And then I actually read the whole article. And it's like, if you remember last year, if you were there, chances are you don't. And I'm like, this article is adorable. It's wonderful. I love it. <laughs> that is hilarious. I am going to have a really hard time following this up with my, my next. I don't, I don't think I can. Um. Mm. Wedding liquors kill one child, four are in hospital. This is a roller coaster that we're on. You you just hit the high point. I'm bringing us back down. Okay, so New York, uh, 1913. Everybody was having such a good time at the wedding party of Giormon Giortano and Miss Giantando Giortando. Yep. Okay. That they did not see several children slip into a back room with four bottles of liquor. The youngsters from 2 to 12 years old, I'm going to repeat that, from 2 to 12 years old, drank practically all the contents. The parents discovered what had happened when they started home, but they passed the affair off as a joke. Today, however, a man rushed into the McDougal Street Police Station and said that all the children at 137 West Houston Street, were sick. They had been at the wedding. Frank Altmano, two years old, was found dead. His sisters, aged seven and five, were tossing on a bed in agony in another room. Two others were ill. The four were removed to St. Vincent's Hospital, where it was said they were suffering from poisoning, probably caused by the liquor. Uh, another one dies, uh, that is Rosa Altmano, seven years old, sister of two-year-old Frank, and the police took charge of what remained of various colored liquids that were served at the wedding. It was assumed an analysis will show they contained a poison of some sort, and I'm going to go ahead and say that that poison is actually alcohol, because two-year-olds and seven-year-olds probably shouldn't be fucking drinking it. No, they shouldn't, but they also... I'm thinking a bunch of little kids snatch up a bunch of bottles. Maybe one of them was a colored cleaning. colored liquids. It's pretty, you know. Windex. <laughs> look, look at this juice. Let's have some juice in this pretty bottle. Yeah. So sorry for bringing us back down, but I, I got a couple to bring us back up. At, but I think Amber has something. A rattlesnake bites man twice on chin. Oh, geez. Pasadena, California, in 1936, bitten twice on the chin by a rattlesnake. Cosmo Booit. 42, is in a serious condition at the Huntington Memorial Hospital. Booit, master mechanic at the Mount Wilson Hotel, was in the hills above the resort yesterday when he attempted to capture a snake alive with a forked stick. Oh. Hmm. Wriggling free, the reptile rose and struck Booit twice on the chin. Yep, yep, yep. 
This is the same paper girl first saw in Dream Sweetheart's Death in Fire. Oh. This is in Montana. Cameron Baker perished in a forest fire exactly as Elizabeth McCoy, his sweetheart, dreamed he would 48 hours before the tragedy. And so I'm like, oh my goodness, and they didn't burn her as a witch. <laughs> right? But there was a forest fire, and he was a firefighter. Oh, well, I mean, she's probably naturally anxious about that, especially when fire season is, is exactly. happening. Exactly. She begged him not to go back into the fire, and he did, even though she had urged him not to return to the patrol. He yeah. was a firefighter. It is a concern of anybody. So I have a story about a man who was much kissed. <laughs> I have a story of the opposite of that. When you're done. <laughs> well, you're going to be surprised. Uh, this is 1913 Chicago. 50 women spectators in the circuit court today rushed to Benny Bernstein, 22 years old, and hugged and kissed him when he was found not guilty of the murder of Lawrence Buck. The court attaches were unable to maintain order. The women followed Bernstein to the street and continued kissing him until he was taken away in an automobile. Bernstein stabbed Buck fatally in a downtown department store where both were employed. Bernstein was freed on a plea of self-defense. So, yeah, stab a guy, stab your co-worker at, at the, the, the retail store where you both work, and then get, uh, get off, and then get off some more when a bunch of women kiss you. So here's someone who didn't get off. Okay. This is uh, one of the first Florida men. I think I, I'm. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the first, but this is 1932 Florida man. Not going to tell you the, the title. I don't want to give it away. Yeah, sometimes they're spoilery. Deputy Sheriff L. M. Hatton said that Clarence L. Sullivan, backwoods farmer on whom a mutilation operation had been performed, confessed last night that he had emasculated himself. Oh, oh, oh. The confession was made to Dr. Henry J. Jensen. Hatton said the confession came after officers sought vainly all day to break down Sullivan's story that he had been kidnapped, robbed, and operated on by five rowdy drunks. He added that the motive either was sympathy or publicity. Farmer confesses to mutilating himself. And underneath this is a horrible ad placement. Oh my. Victory special. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to keep that in because that is, yeah. uh, that's special, all right. Sometimes they have some good stuff there as far as uh, placement. All right, I have a couple of brief stories about uh, suffrage. Uh, I've got a couple recipes to make you suffer. Oh, boy. but Everybody's <laughs> going to be suffraging. So this is from the 1914 Belvedere Daily Republican. Uh, so the first one. Indianapolis, July 9th, women's suffrage caused the domestic trouble of Edwin M. Lee, former Republican and later progressive state chairman, according to friends who discussed his suit for divorce today. The usual conditions, however, were reversed. Lee strongly favored women entering politics, while his wife, 12 years older than Lee, was an anti-suffragist. I'm so glad that that sentence continued because I thought you were going to stop at 12 years old. <laughs> yeah, 12 years older. <laughs> I mean, it's that time. It could have been, you know, one or the other. Lee charged that for the last 10 years, while he has been a leading figure in Indiana politics, his wife has been jealous and accused him of paying attention to other women. 
And then right next to that, we have votes for women start jail riots. Whew. I know, right? I love riots. New York, July 9th. 40 prisoners at Blackwell's Island staged the first suffrage mutiny in the history of New York today. The prisoners have been advocating women's suffrage and disciplinary measures were taken after they had made several demonstrations. 600 prisoners were seated in the dining room when Warden Hayes entered and a shower of dishes were hurled at him. The mutiny was quelled when keepers fired their revolvers over the heads of the crowd. Five keepers and several prisoners were taken to the hospital, severely cut by the dishes. Miss Catherine E. Davis, Commissioner of Correction, today faced the task of dealing with the first serious outbreak which has occurred in the public penal institutions since she assumed office. Hmm. I don't know if this was a men's or a women's prison. Honestly. Could go either way. It really could. That's what I'm thinking. All right. So what you got? I got some recipes for you. So let's first do the sandwich supper loaf. Mm, Probably not, but sure. You need uh, one loaf of bread, three cups of butter creamed, two cups of salad dressing, sliced chicken, chopped celery, chopped green pepper, cranberry jelly, cream cheese, nuts, and olives. Okay. Remove the crust from bread and slice lengthwise. Spread first layer with butter and cranberry jelly. Press bread over this, spread with butter, and cover with the celery and green pepper, which have been moistened with the salad dressing. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Spread the next layer with butter and lay thinly sliced chicken on top. Place bread over this and trim loaf evenly. Mash cream cheese with salad dressing and spread over the entire loaf. Mm -mm. Garnish with chopped nuts and stuffed olives. Set in refrigerator to thoroughly chill, slice, and serve. Uh, And just, you you lost me. The whole recipe lost me uh, around the time that we decided that butter and cranberry Cranberry jelly. Cranberry jelly should be in any way um, in the same room, aside from if you have a Thanksgiving plate with, you know, cranberry sauce on one side and a buttered roll on the other, but not close to each other. I'm just, I'm just not on board with this. I'm just not. Do you have another horrible oh, recipe? Oh, for I me? do. Because I, I, I have no recipes, actually. Believe it or not, I actually have several because I have not given you any recipes in quite some time. I might. Uh, I, I'm trying to get into Facebook to grab some of uh, Chris Garcia's Jello recipes or whatever that he gave me a, a couple weeks ago. So keep going. Lima bean loaf. Oh no, I hate lima beans. Me too. Oh, lima beans, onion, carrot, dried breadcrumbs, mustard, paprika, one egg beaten. Two tablespoons melted bacon fat and half cup boiling water or warm milk. Soak lima beans overnight and cook with diced onion and carrot in boiling water until tender. Drain and put all vegetables through food chopper. Add seasonings, bacon fat, egg, and liquid. Tomato juice might well be used too in place of water. Arrange in layers in a well-buttered pan with finely shredded pimento and green pepper. Bake an oven for 30 minutes and serve with brown sauce. They really loved their pimento back then, and it's hard to find that anywhere but stuffed inside an olive these days. That's I the don't... only place I've ever seen it. Yeah, I don't know where to get pimento. It's weird. I'm like, do I just get some tweezers and remove it from all my olives or what? I've what got am I doing two here? more for you. Oh, here we go. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. 
minced clam broth toasted sandwich. No, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Bacon, peanut butter, currant jelly. Fry bacon slowly. Spread two pieces of buttered toast with peanut butter and jelly. Then make sandwich using white bits of lettuce. Two of these sandwiches following a cup of the rich hot soup make an adequate lunch. So you need minced clam broth and then you toast a bacon, lettuce, peanut butter, and jelly sandwich to dip into the clam broth. Those are all sorts of fucking things that don't go together. I will say, okay, probably the best burger I've ever had was a peanut butter and jelly burger. Peanut butter and beef go well together, but I mean, they use that in a lot of other kind of cooking, too. It was peanut butter, jalapeno jelly, and bacon. I could get on board with that, probably. It was really delicious, and the place that had it no longer has it. And I'm very frustrated because all I want is that fucking burger. You know what I want? I want some maple nut pie. Okay, well, tell me all about maple nut pie. No, I'm not going to tell you shit about it, really, just because the name of it is maple nut pie, and as soon as (laughs) I saw that, I was like, that sounds like what you would call a Canadian coming on your face. (laughs) You're my little maple nut pie. Give me some more. (laughs) Well, like, because a Canadian is not going to call you a dirty little whore, so it's it's like, come on your face and be like, that's my good maple nut pie. (laughs) All right, so Chris Garcia picked up a bunch of cookbooks from the 30s, 40s, etc., and was sending me these on Facebook, and I was just delighted and grossed out at the same time. So let's talk about shrimp and potato pudding. I'd probably put it in my mouth. You would. You would. Uh, so you have four cups fluffy mashed Maine potatoes, one cup finely minced celery, a pound of cooked shrimp, coarsely chopped, a beaten egg, parsley, scraped onion juice, and salt and pepper. Combine the ingredients in the order given. Transfer to a baking dish rubbed with butter or margarine. Bake about 35 minutes in a moderately hot oven. So you're basically just mixing mashed potatoes, celery, and shrimp with an egg to kind of fluff it up, I suppose. No, it's probably gross, but I, I might eat it. It's pretty horrifying to me, but I, I've never I've never enjoyed shrimp, so that's that's me. I feel like if you try to cook potatoes and shrimp at the same temperature at the same time, the potatoes, by the time they're done, will have uh, shrimp bubble gum. Yeah, I've never really cooked uh, shrimp before, so I can't say that I know how it works, but that, that sounds like it's not going not gonna to work well. No, like you're not going to be able to chew through the shrimp. So, so, oh, that's, that's horrifying. So, okay. This is, uh, in the Chicago Tribune in 1914, official okay put on new steps at city dances. Society women will supervise fox trot and one step. No bear cat hugs. The fox trot and the waltz canter have defeated the old fashioned two step and waltz. They spell waltz, W-A-L-T-S. It drives me crazy. In the first round, in the controversy over which steps shall be permitted at the new municipal dance halls, after announcing several days ago that only the sedate steps of years ago would be permitted at the city dances, Mrs. Leonora Z. Meter, head of the Department of Public Welfare, announced last night that if approved by society women and social workers, the modern dances would be permitted under the close supervision of these same women. Yes, that's definitely, we need social workers to approve our dances because they have nothing better to do. It is the HOA of dancing. Really, it is, exactly, yeah. In addition, 
Dancing teachers will be stationed in the various halls and watch closely to see that the new steps are executed with strict regard to ballroom etiquette. Bearcat hugs, turkey trot wobblings, and other grotesque features of some of the animal dances will be barred. No intricate steps. No tangos for them. No tangos. And it's that same year around that time. The new dances to be permitted, it is understood, will be the one step, the something trot, and the waltz canter. So yeah, they're being they're they're being dicks about what uh, what you can do as far as on the dance floor. Don't wobble your knees. They've got the rulers out, but instead of like measuring your skirt, they're like sticking it between the men and the women and being like, okay, you need to be at least two of these apart. <laughs> no turkey trots here. Don't actually touch. Just put your hands up as though you're going to. Mm-hmm. Pretend. Pretend. All right. What you got? I, I'm out of shit. Okay. All right. I have a couple more things. Um, a couple, couple more things. <laughs> so, all right. I'll just how, how many, I had 18 pages. I guess you're on computer, though. It's hard to say how much I have, but I, I think I had like um, 25 slides with one, one to two each. Some of them have three. So, big snow pile saves lives of six children. The snow, which Stephen Greb had heaped up while cleaning his yard recently, saved the lives of his six children when a fire destroyed the home early today. He threw the children from a window to the snow pile. Nice. Right? Good thinking, Dad. Yeah. All right. I'm just going to dive into this next one from the 1914 Herald and Review out of Decatur, Illinois. My conscience is bothering me. I want to confess, said Earl Humberger, 32, accosting a policeman here. He told the officers he had three wives, acquiring them in six months' time. Impressive. Yeah, yeah. He's got game. Humburger said he was first married in 1910 at Pontiac, Michigan, and deserted his bride after two days. Two months later, he married a woman in Detroit, leaving her in a few days. His third matrimonial venture occurred after a lapse of three months. He lived with his third wife a month, he said, and fled to Chicago. Humburger did not name his wives. The police are holding him pending an investigation. Hmm. These are just a couple little bits of weirdness. Otis Miller's Ford touring car became unmanageable while driving east on Main Street Friday morning and tried to climb the steps at the Presbyterian Church. Wow. Yeah. Louis Lightfield, who admitted he had given his wife only $8 in 10 months and then stole her chickens, which he sold for his own pleasure was sentenced to 90 days by Justice Klein at Burlington from the Lake Geneva Herald of Wisconsin. Wow. Then we have the wonderful Strange Tales, the unusual in today's news from the 1914 Herald News out of Joliet. A couple of stories here. So Flint, Michigan, sentencing Robert Carlos for betraying a young girl, Judge Wisner said, I apologize to all the murderers, robbers, and confidence men in Marquette Prison for sending you into their presence. And I'm thinking betraying a young girl might actually be a euphemism for rape. I can't think of why he would be like, oh, you cheated on your girlfriend. And it's a young girl, so this might actually be something under the statutory level. Mm. Yeah, so that that's kind of what that feels like, but it feels like there's a lot of fluff covering that. 
Uh, New York. Surprised while cracking a safe, Harry Cornell grabbed a small bottle and started to run. A detective tripped him, but Cornell held the bottle high above his head as he fell. There was a reason. It contained nitroglycerin. Oh, my. That, that could have depended much worse. Nicholas Henningsen, an engineer, sought a gas leak in the basement of Quinn's saloon, guided by a lighted match. Doctors at the German hospital said that he might recover. Wow. Here we have more chickens. Charles Carey, a farmer, had $15 worth of chickens stolen. The thief, however, dropped a wallet containing $90 in the coop. Carey would like similar visits. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Please come take my ducks and leave me $90. I love my ducks, but I love money more. <laughs> and then uh, a bobsled in Huntington, New York... Carrying 21 persons crashed into a delivery wagon loaded with eggs. Several persons were hurt, but only one egg was broken. Wow. Yeah. How the... Okay. Those are some good strong eggs. Maybe they were duck eggs. Duck eggs are very strong. They are very strong. Yeah. And this is uh, from St. Louis. Uh, why should we should eat the rich? Mrs. H.B. Graham, a wealthy society woman, has a special maid to look after her cat. Don't get me wrong, I love cats, but uh, you got too much money. No so. such thing. Louis Kempany swallowed $4.85 in nickels following a challenge by a fellow laborer. The challenger swallowed seven nickels. Kempany became seriously ill. Kempany and his companion were discussing fire, nail, tack, and glass eaters they had seen, and Galvani suggested a contest proposing the nickels. So Galvani's like, we, we, we've seen people eat, like, fire and glass and nails. Let's eat nickels. And Galvani proceeds to eat seven of them, while uh, Louis Galvani, uh, Kempany, he swallowed $4.85 in them, so... That's a lot of nickels. That's a ton of nickels. Yeah, yeah. Here's where the London police were fooled by movie suffragettes. In London, an automobile containing chorus girls, supposed to be suffragettes, attacking the residents of Premier Asquith, was stopped by the police today as it dashed into Downing Street. The girls were employed by an American motion picture company, which, to make the raid more realistic had equipped the machine with the colors of the militant organization. I want to go back to your nickel story. Yeah. Because I did. I was doing the math. Okay. Um, that is 97 nickels. Wow. Um, wow. That's 90 more than his buddy swallowed. Yeah, like seriously, if your buddy went first, just swallow eight and stop. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. All right. Oh, my God. All right. I'm done now. So we had the, the movie Suffragettes in 1914. And then six years later, we have this lovely poem in the Chicago Tribune. All right. It's called The State Salon, which is S-O-L-O-N. So I'm not sure what they're going for there. In various legislatures are gathered men of note to ponder on the problem. Do women get the vote? A weighty subject, brothers, not lightly given the sack. You kick it out the front door and it sneaks in the back. Of course we must have women, and some have proved their worth. But if they get the ballot, won't they soon own the earth? Yes, motherfucker. I value mother's wisdom. To my wife's I may defer, 
But are any other women as smart as I? No, sir. Let women in convention urge states to ratify. Some men may be weak-minded and say yes, but not I. We men must always govern. We can make laws by rote. I'm very fond of women, but I hate to see them vote. Okay. Iron ironically, this post name is Iris. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do one more. I'm skipping a couple and we'll save them for another episode. We have a glimpse of the future from 1953. Okay. You're going to enjoy this. I think I actually got this from newspapers.com where they sometimes have like weird news. Look at this. All right, so this is in the Spokane Chronicle. Walkie phones may be next. The telephone of the future. Mark R. Sullivan, San Francisco, president and director of the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company, said in an address last night, Just what form the future telephone will take is, of course, pure speculation. Here is my prophecy. In its final development, the telephone will be carried about by the individual, perhaps as we carry a watch today. It probably will require no dial or equivalent, and I think the users will be able to see each other if they want, as they talk. Who knows but what it may actually translate from one language to another. Wow. Dude had it down. He had this shit figured out. He, this is a time traveler. We need to find him and steal his machine and then go back in time and slap the newspaper men and editors who decide to put, like, ads next to things they shouldn't be next to. There's and, slap and lots of people, honestly. We have lots of people to slap. We have a list. It's a long list. Yes. So, so yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that's 1953. Can you imagine having that kind of vision? Dude should have been writing science fiction. I'm impressed. He would have had it done. So, yes, those are our, our old newspaper stories. Uh, we hope you've been entertained. They're always entertaining to us. I don't know about you, but when I'm finding these, I'm always like, ooh, treasure. I know. And, like, he here I am, and I've got, like, 18 pages, and I'm like, that should be enough. Like, because my goal is just to, like, kind of, like, tie with Christy. And um, I should have known. It's never enough. It's well, never enough. Keep in mind that I've been doing more of the tinies just because it's the Aurora case. It's kind of like my obsession. Yes. That's why a vast majority of mine were from the Illinois area, even if they were talking about cases out of state. Yeah. The papers themselves were from Illinois and from 1913, 14, 15, because that's the newspapers I've been looking at. So I, I don't look for these things. They, I, they find you. They find me while I'm looking for other stuff. And then they d distract me. And then I close the tab and I realize I didn't actually get the information I needed for the real case. And I have to reopen the tab. It's a whole thing. But yeah, so keep in mind that because of my obsession with the Aurora case, that's really what well, sparked you know, me I, to have more, more. I just need to start doing this, like have a running tab when I stumble across them just to exactly, like. Exactly. Yes. I have, I have files. I have a file. It's of course spring, you do. Spring 22 newspaper screenshots. I just went in. I didn't need to go and look for them this week when we decided we were going to do old-timey newspapers. I just went in there and put them all into a spreadsheet. Thank you. So that's all I did. So, okay. 
we have a shout out to give to some new patrons. Welcome to the old timey crimey Patreon, Robin Curtis and Sen. Hi guys. Hi guys. I just want to say to all of you out there who haven't joined the Patreon, um, you know that I sing the names and you can choose, I think, somehow what name you go by on Patreon, your, your profile name. You, you can make me sing <laughs> the weirdest shit you can imagine. Oh my God, do this. <laughs> cucumber Gobbler McChicken. You're still, you're still on that cucumber. I'm That's still on that cucumber, big yes. Big cucumber. We have a gigantic cucumber in my fridge from Misfits Market. So yes, um, you should join the Patreon even if it's just for one month to take advantage of the over 200 episodes we have on there. From tinies to extra extras and so on and so forth. And for the Aurora case that we're covering where we're talking about murders in and around Aurora, Illinois in the 1910s that may have been a serial killer. And, you know, if you don't want to do that, there's some things in life that are free and that is wonderful. Those are rating and reviewing us. Rate us. Give us stars. Tell us what you think. Tell us how much you love us because I, I need that in my life, really. It, it makes us happy, yes. Uh, you can do that on Spotify. You can do that in iTunes. You can do it anywhere. You can do it in lots of places. We so. can do it in lots of places. Mm -hmm. You can do it in lots of places. So do that. And also tell a friend. Honestly, if you like us, your friends are going to like us. And as I've said multiple times, at the very least, they'll giggle at the name. Because I came up with a damn good name for this podcast. And I'm still proud of it. Three years on. <laughs> so, so yes. Uh, and also, welcome to new listeners. I, I think we have uh, a few new listeners. Several, actually, I would say, judging by the numbers this past week. It's been fun looking at the numbers. <laughs> and uh, we appreciate you and welcome. And we also appreciate those of you who have been with us since the beginning. You're all awesome. Everybody's awesome. So, everything is cool when you're part of a team. <laughs> Is that from something? I'm imagining a cartoon. Yeah, it, a it's a children's the, cartoon. It's isn't it the um, everything is awesome? That's the Lego Movie, maybe. Sure. Okay. Hold on. No, no, no. Somebody, um, tell us this in in a review on Apple Podcasts. Everybody who knows it, tell us it in a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Amber, don't look it up. I'm still gonna. But don't don't, don't tell them what you found. Fine. So okay. Uh, what you doing this week, Amber? I am going to try to plant some things and make myself a little garden. Hmm. That's the goal. Uh, whether I actually get it done or not is debatable because I meant to do it this weekend and did not. Oh, well, it happens. What are you up to? Um, we're having a girls' night on Friday. We are. I'm, I'm so excited. Super excited. I can't wait. We're going to, like, put up my, my Kansas City... Penguin Zoo video on the TV and play. No, not play. We're going to eat cheese. We're not going to play with cheese. We, we might can, play with cheese. We're going to play with cheese. Yeah, we're going to play with cheese. Yeah. yeah. I'm bringing squeeze cheese now just to play with it. Nice. So, uh, yeah, cheese, drinking, girls. Yes, cheese, drinking, girls. That's what we are, 100%. So, yes, I'm very excited for Friday. I think that's going to be a fantastic time. I'm excited. And uh, I'm also reading a book. I'm trying to read a book 
called the back mechanic in order to try to avoid uh, the surgery, which is uh, not the surgery I expected. Different surgery. Yeah, different surgery that they're now recommending because I don't qualify for the one I expected. And so I'm trying to avoid that. But this book, I'm sure it's great. But I think whoever converted it to ebook was um, drunker than I am right now. Could be. And then never went back to look at it because the formatting and the errors are horrific. Like, it's supposed to be a really good book. Reviews all over the internet, not just on Amazon, but everywhere are really good. People saying that this saved their lives, literally. And Amber and I have talked about how chronic pain can be, honestly, like, suicidal. Um, so, like, yeah. That that's that's that to me is is it says a lot. Those testimonials say a lot. But the no, please, the, if the author of that book is or anybody who knows him is for some reason listening to this, shoot me an email, oldtimeycrimey at gmail dot com, and I will fix your fucking ebook because it is not driving me crazy. Oh God! All right, so that that is this week, and. We will see you next week, which will be actually a Friday the 13th. Ooh. I'm working on something special, but I got to find it first. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds it's, good. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to find what I'm looking for, but uh, it should be should be interesting. So we'll see you next week. And um, let's say don't. Um, don't use railroad tracks as a pillow. Don't kiss your girlfriend across the clothesline and sit really close to her and maybe hold hands. I don't know, honestly. Eh, good enough. Sure. Thanks for listening, everybody, and have a lovely night. Bye. Bye. Sources. Sources! I mean, well, honestly. It's allnewspapers.com. Yeah, no, it's pretty much allnewspapers.com. And I really, really feel like he should be put on like a telenova with this trial. <laughs> Telenovela? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're keeping that in. What are you talking about? <laughs> nope. I'm fucking this up. Let's open this soda. <laughs> Here you go. Pour some rum in that bitch. Oh, I wish. <laughs> I know.